Hello, and welcome to Talk Julia. My name is David Amos. And my name is Randy Davila. So, Randy, we uh, we talked about some fun stuff last week, but we kind of skipped over maybe talking more about like some beginner uh, content, which we're still very much Julia beginners. I spent a little bit of time this week uh, looking into how functions work in Julia um, and uh, some more on uh, this idea of multiple dispatch, which I think if you, you know, Anytime you search for Julia, it's like one of the first things you learn about uh, the language or you start hearing about uh, the language. So I kind of just wanted to do a run through of some interesting things that I found while I'm kind of learning about this and some, you know, my commentary on it, again, from a from a Python perspective. You know, if you've ever written a function almost in any language before, I feel like you almost instinctively know how to write a function in Julia. It uses, right, the function keyword instead of, say, like the def keyword in Python. Uh, and you have to end it with this end keyword instead of using like curly braces or or something like that. But I think we talked about on the, I can't remember if it was the first or second episode, this, you know, idea of returning a value without the return keyword. Yeah, yeah, we, we mentioned that. Yeah, so, you know, that's something that looks odd to me. So I'm looking at a function that has two parameters, X and Y, and returns the sum of those X plus Y, or whatever, you know, the plus operator does to whatever the, those argu the arguments are. But you don't have to, you know, when you return the value, you just type X plus Y, and that gets returned. Yeah, it's the last line of the code block contained in the definition. Now there is a return keyword, and, you know, you can use it, so for example, you know, why this using just, you know, the last line of the function as a return value, if that was the only way to return a value, it would be difficult to say, stop the function, return some value based on a condition somewhere in it, right? So you've got this return keyword that'll let you do that. Anywhere that shows up, it's just going to return. You know, so it's nested in like an if block or something like that. But I thought to myself, like, okay, I, there's two ways to do this. What's like the right way, right? Like what is the idiomatic Julia way of returning a value from a function? And I thought, well, why not just go to the source, right? So I went to the Julia language GitHub repository and clicked into the standard library folder and just scrolled down and thought, okay, here's the dates module, right? Like what, what does it look like in there? And maybe we'll do the arithmetic, look at some of the arithmetic functions. And you scroll down and you see, okay, they're using the return function, or sorry, the return keyword in in uh, in all of their function definitions here. Okay, what about something else, right? So I went back to the standard library and found what looked interesting to me, linear algebra. And what does it look like in there? How are they doing that? So I just picked a random one. I think it was bitarray.jl and go through and, ah, in these functions in that module, they're not using the return keyword. So this illustrates something that I've been thinking about. I, I feel like there there needs to be like a document somewhere illustrating best practices when writing Julia code, right? This is somewhat easy to find in the Python community, but it seems to not have found a cohesive set of rules yet in Julia for what is the best way to write functions so that other, other Julia programmers will look at it and not have to like quickly decide or quickly decipher, I mean, what's happening. So you're thinking of something kind of like the PEP 8. Right, right. Like what is, the, what is the PEP 8 version for Julia? <laughs> <laughs> so I think there is something. I think there is like a Julia language style guide. Yeah, I was going to say, I remember seeing this. Uh, so this would be, I think, you know, similar to like what you're looking for. 
and it's got like you know what are the idiomatic ways of of writing things tips and tricks you know things like uh you know write functions just not scripts avoid writing overly specific types and there's a whole bunch of stuff uh in here as well so it's maybe not as opinionated maybe that's the right word than something like pep8 is which pep8 has for example like preferences on how you should you know put white space around operators when you're doing like math versus other things or you know there's all sorts of um i think very specific things this document that you're looking at right now this julia docs is like style guide that guy from julia for Tam talented amateurs i was watching one of his videos and he was saying that he was reading through this but it wasn't as clear as he liked so he had to go and he found some other source somewhere that had like these very specific like pep eight type of things for julia i don't know what document he was looking at but i remember distinctly since you just brought this up that this is a it's just something that he mentioned gotcha yeah i mean i would think you know pep eight is not a rule in in python and if if you're listening and don't know what pep8 is it's basically the style guide it's kind of a it was accepted as a you know pep stands for python enhancement proposal so it was accepted as one of these enhancement proposals and it you know it gives very specific instructions on how to write certain things in python but i think you know pep8 is not like hard rules about how to write Python. And it gets broken all the time by people who evangelize PEP8 <laughs> as well. And I think, you know, a lot of it comes down to if you're working on a team somewhere at a company, whatever language you're using, there's probably beyond just kind of an accepted general language style guide, there's probably a team specific style guide as well, but the, like the ways that you would format certain things. Uh, and things like that. So maybe, I don't know this history of the style guide in Julia, but maybe it's that they're trying not to be as opinionated with it. But going back real quick, just in the Julia language itself in the standard library, you've got two different modules that are seemingly using two different styles of whether you should use the return statement or should not use the return statement, even if it's the very last line of code in a function. But as I scrolled down the document, looking at all the functions, so this is back in the bitarray.jl module in the linear algebra package, you keep scrolling down that module and all of a sudden you start seeing examples with the return <laughs> the return statement. Uh, and I think it goes through the rest of the, the document there. And I'm not like taking a jab at you know the Julia developers or anything. You can find tons of examples like this in Python's uh, implementation as well, like the C Python. Uh, implementation. Yeah, I don't think it's a jab. I just think that that as we're learning, Julia, we we would like to follow the best practices. I right. I like the return statement just because it's kind of it's 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 explicit to me what's happening. It's breaking out from the function code block. It's breaking out. It's doing something, right? Yeah, th I'm the same. I I think I'm going to stick to using the the return statement. So anyway, I didn't mean to make such a big deal, I guess, out of just the re <laughs> return statement uh, return keyword there, but it's an interesting thing, right? And you think about like, if you have a question about what's the idiomatic way to do this in a language, kind of a natural place to go would be to the things that are maintained by the core language developers and see what they're, what they're doing. So back to functions and excluding how you return the values from the function, if the function is going to return anything at all, right? Mm -hmm. There are several ways of defining functions. And this is, this is somewhat different than Python, right? Yeah. There are the code block styles with like function, give it a name, put your variables in there, code block, return something in. But then there's also these anonymous functions, these one-liner functions right. with an arrow. And then there's also 
defining the function not as an anonymous function, but just defining a function in one line like you would see in a math textbook. Right. Yeah. All those are mentioned here in this in the manual section on, on functions. So I scroll down to where it says anonymous functions. And yeah, to your point, so I think these work best for almost like mathematical type functions, really. But you know, if you can express it as like a very simple expression, then you can, you know, do this to like X and then I call it like goes to, right? But it's the dash and then the right carrot. Uh, say something like x squared or something, the anonymous function. But to your point on, you know, writing functions on a single line, not anonymous functions, but named functions, this was kind of an interesting thing as well, I think, you know, coming from from Python. Yeah, right at the beginning, when you first get introduced to, you know, how to write a function, it says there's a second more terse syntax for defining a function in Julia, where it almost looks like the function name and its parameter list are like a variable, and you're assigning it using the equals operator to some like expression here. So this one in particular we're looking at says F and then in parentheses X comma Y close parentheses is equal to X plus Y. That's defining a function. Moreover, it says here that short, simple function definitions are common in Julia. The short function syntax is accordingly quite idiomatic, considerably reducing both typing and visual noise. So that's something I would say is definitely a kind of a change, you know, coming to Python to think that this sort of writing functions on a single line is uh, considered idiomatic because it is not in, in Python. This is considered, yeah, idiomatic, Julia. And I, I like that. So I, I, while we're looking at this, this one line function of f of x comma y equals to x plus y all in one go, I'd like to talk about this um, plus operation in Julia with regards to multiple dispatch, which I know that you're going to talk about in a moment, I just was looking at that plus function and thought about what I was playing around with in a, in a Pluto notebook earlier before we met up. Nice. Yeah. So an interesting fact in Julia is that we can specify specific types for given, given methods, for example, addition. So um, on my screen right now, I have three different ways of adding one. Right. And the first way is one plus one where there's no decimal expansion. So these are um, integer values. Right. And before the expression one plus one, I'm using this at which macro. This macro in Juliet's it's built in will tell you what method is being used for that given um, operation. So, for example, for these two integer values, one plus one. I type at which before that, and it says that uh, this plus operation is taking in two variables, X and Y, of double colon capital T, where this mm -hmm. capital T belongs somewhere in this list or this set mm -hmm. of possible types, integer types in this case. They're all integer based, um, right. in 16, in 32. But if I change it, so in the next uh, cell of my Pluto notebook, I have 1.0 plus 1.0. So again, back to the yeah. plus stuff. And I'm calling the at which macro again. I run that cell and I see that it's specific to float 64 for both of the entries. And on the line uh, below that, I do the at which macro again, except for this time I'm doing 1 plus 1.0 just to kind of see what's happening. And in this case, the addition operation is happening on types of type number. So number is one of these, one of the built-in types in Julia. Yeah. Now, also, there's a built-in function called methods that will list out all the possible methods, which depend on the types that are passed into the function. 
right? You can think of the addition operator as like a function, right? It, it takes a tuple of entries and returns either an error or some value, right? So it's almost like the addition is a function. So if we pass the plus sign into the methods function, we get a giant list of all of the ways in which this operation or this function is going to run in Julia, depending on the types that are put in, right? Right, yeah. I think, you know, first of all, we should be clear what we mean by method here. We didn't really say exactly what that is, but I think we've kind of hinted at it. And that is, if you have a function that does something on some arguments that get passed to the function, you can change the behavior of the function based on the type of the arguments that get passed. If the types are integers, right, you could do something different. And you can define a function with the same name but that has different types of arguments or even a different number of arguments. And it becomes what's called a method of that function. On that note, we should probably mention that the method that is chosen, right? The, the, the act of choosing that method is called dispatch, right? right? And in Julia, you're allowed multiple dispatch, which you were just saying, like you can have the name of a function and the method choice will depend on the types that you pass into that that function, right? Yeah, all the so, types of every argument. That's kind of the important bit right, of yeah, multiple yeah. dispatch. In other languages, it's typically the first argument that you pass right. it. Whatever type that is, is going to determine the method that's used, right? Um, but yeah, I guess I really interrupted you there, but what else do you... <laughs> no, it's <laughs> yeah. all good. We, it's part of the conversation, you know? I mean, I think we we pretty much covered everything that that I wanted to, you know, to talk about the, at this point. I mean, we'll talk more about this stuff in, in uh, later... You know episodes, but uh, I do want to mention that you know there's a section in the manual, the Julia manual on methods as well. It's quite extensive and you know has a lot of a inf- lot more information than we've covered uh, here. But there was one issue that uh, you know co- that comes up with multiple dispatch that I wanted to make sure we we mentioned uh, while we're talking about this, and this is method ambiguities. And so I'm glad they included. This, I mean, well, they they have to in the in the manual. They really should, right? So I'm glad they they did. But it also, you know, it was like a kind of a burning question in my mind while I was reading this, <laughs> and so it was nice to see this, you know, then answered for me right there in the same uh, document. But the idea is that if we can create methods on a function that take different combinations of you know types of arguments, then could you? Put yourself in a situation where you can't tell which method you're supposed to use, given the the arguments that you pass to a to a function. Like the the dispatch system can't decide. There's like multiple candidates, and it, it you can do that. So there's an example here of a function called g that takes two arguments. The first one x is specified to be a float sixty four type. But the next one, y, can be any type. There's no specific, you know, nothing is specified. And it returns 2x plus y. And then there's a second method on that function g where the first argument x now is unrestricted. Like it doesn't have a, a type indicator on it. But the second argument y uh, must be a float 64 value. And it returns a totally different combination. It's x plus 2y now instead of 2x plus why and so you can see you know it gives an example of like calling it with the different types where you know you call it with a float in the first argument and an integer in the second argument you get one value and if you call it with an integer like this the same integer that you used in the first argument before is a float but use it as an integer and then you know the same 
number you used as the integer in the first one, now use it as a float, um, then you get a different value. But what happens if you put both values, try to call G where both values are of type float? Well, what happens is you've got two methods where either one could be the right method or the one you know that matches the types of those, right? Because both of them have one parameter that's a float 64 and the other one can be anything. It's just the order that matters. But if both of them happen to be float 64, you don't know which, which uh, version of G to call. So what Julia does then is what it should do is that it shouldn't pick anything for you. It should say, hey, we have a problem. And it does, it gives you a method error. And it tells you that, you know, the, the way that the combination of types that you used when you called that function is ambiguous. And it shows you that there's even like what the candidate methods are and prints out like their signature for you to see. And uh, and even gives you a possible fix. I love says, that. I love uh, the possible fix. <laughs> possible fix would be to define a method that specifies what to do precisely when both uh, arguments are floats. So if you're designing a you know a function that has a whole bunch of methods and you know is taking advantage of that multiple dispatch, you need to be careful of you know ensuring that none of this ambiguity. Uh, can occur so that your users don't find themselves in a position where they, they can't use the function the way they need to because the right method isn't implemented. Yeah. Um, so I want to continue this talk about functions because I feel like we're leaving something out. The ordering of the variables that go into the function as well as keyword arguments because it is different than in Python. I'm going to, in front of me, I'm going to say a function maybe because um, I'm always plotting lines. I'll call this like a line function. And it takes in a slope and it takes in a, um, I'll call it a bias. Making machine learning, I'll call it weight and bias. Actually, the first argument will be X. Second argument is weight. Third argument is bias. And inside the code block of the function definition called line, I'll say Y is equal to um, weight times X plus bias, just to be explicit. And then I'll return Y and then end up that function call. So this function should work as you would think. So if I just do the line value at, I don't know, a 10, and then uh, have a weight of one and a bias of one, I call it, I get 11 as you would expect. Mm -hmm. But now suppose like you wanted to make this more customized and you set your bias equal to zero. So going back into the cell where I'm defining my line, I have X comma weight comma, and then I have bias equal to zero. Yeah, providing a default value, right? Right, so you would think that like, maybe this is like a keyword argument. So if I now in the cell below call this function line with the parameters 10 comma one, I'm not giving it a bias. It returns what you would expect. It sets the bias equal to zero by default and it right. returns 10. But now if I come in here and I do comma and I say, I wanna change my bias to be one, Right, like I'm calling the line function 10 comma one comma bias equals one. I'm trying to enforce the bias to be one. I get an error. And that's because this is not a keyword like you would see in Python. So if I wanted to change the bias value, instead of saying bias equals to one, when I call the function, I just put in a one. Even yeah. though the third entry says bias equals zero, like it would be a keyword, it's not. 
it's in that third place. And if you want to change that third entry, you have to put a one in that third entry. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Because in Python, if you do that, like you have it written in this Julia function, in Python, that would automatically become like you a could keyword. use it as a keyword argument. Now, in Julia, you have to indicate that you are beginning to provide keyword arguments by putting a semicolon instead of a, a, a comma. So now in my function definition, I have line, open parentheses, x, comma, weight, semicolon, then bias equals to zero. Now I get an error when I try to run line 10, comma, 1, comma, 1, because this bias term is not the third entry. It's a keyword now. So if I want to change the bias, I have to now explicitly write it out or type it out, and then it'll work. Um, this is kind of interesting in that anything that follows the semicolon will now be a keyword argument, and anything before it is an ordering of the variables that you put in, and you yeah. don't specify any keywords there. So those are typically called positional. Oh, yeah, positional, positional arguments. arguments. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, so that's kind of cool. That, or not cool, but it's just it's, it's something to note if you're coming to Julia from Python, for example, which we will keep on saying over and over again because that's what we're doing right now. But um, in, when I was programming in Python primarily, still, I often would use Python classes. And Python classes contain data and functions in the form of attributes and methods. Julia doesn't have that. So I had to look around and figure out the best way to do this. For example, if I were to um, write a neural network from scratch in Julia, what would I do? And what I decided on was the composite type, because composite types are types like any other type in Julia, but they contain as many different fields or data as you want. And there are two different types. There are the struct type and the mutable struct. And the, the differences can be explained by their names. Structs, once you define them, are not mutable, so the, the fields of that of that in instance are not mutable, whereas mutable structs are. So on my screen right now, I have struct single neuron. I press enter, go into the code block describing it. And then I have that this single neuron is going to have a weight of type float 64 and a bias of type float 64. Now, once I run that cell, I can make an instance of this single neuron. I can say something like node is equal to single neuron. And then open parentheses and pass in, in the correct order, the weight and bias. So suppose I want um, a weight of like brand, just random weights. Um, and then I'll just have a bias of like 1.0. And this now creates or instantiates a single neuron type. And I can access the fields of that type with the dot notation. So I can say like node was the variable I made, dot weight. And that will show me my current node weight. Um, if I wanted to know the bias, I'd say node.bias. And that would give me my bias. So it acts like a container in a similar way to Python classes. It's not exact, right? There are yeah. these dunder methods and things like that. But it is something to work with. And if I were to do an actual single neuron for like the perceptron, this would most definitely be a mutable type, a mutable struct. That way I can update the weights over time and the bias over time, specify exactly what the types of the, the weights are and things like that. So yeah. just something that I think beginners should know about. And um, 
I think kind of ties in nicely with our discussion about functions because you have right when when you create like a, a struct, right, which is a composite type, then that can be used in a type declaration in like a uh, on a function argument, right? So yeah, right, exactly. And that's how you would do it. If you were to do like the perceptron update rule as a function, right, the input would be of type single neuron, right? Yeah. And, and you're right. I mean, there isn't really this, you know, object oriented paradigm at play here at all. And, uh, you know, that can be that can be a pretty dramatic change coming from Python where, you know, it's it's like OOP all the way down. It feels like the big difference being right, you know, your composite types, they only contain data and then any behavior or something like that that you would typically model with like a class has to be done using a function that you didn't pass the, you know, your whatever instance of your uh, your type to. So, uh, yeah, definitely can be. That's that's like it's kind of a weird shift, you know. You still have this dot notation on your these structs that makes them kind of feel like objects, right? Because you can access like their fields. And it, I think in my mind, it sort of becomes like, you know, how do you encapsulate things then together? If you can't use a class, well, you use a module, right? So the module sort of becomes like the encapsulation of like, here are the the different structs and stuff that I have, and like the behaviors that that they need are defined as functions in the in the module. So more, you know, differences between writing, writing Python and writing Julia. <laughs> right. But, Which we'll, uh, I imagine we'll be doing for at least like half a year. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I think, I think we've covered quite a bit of ground this, uh, this, this episode. So I think we can, we can call it a wrap there. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Well, thanks again for hanging out and talking about Julia with me. And as uh, always, I enjoy it. Yeah. Um, same here. <laughs> All right, man. We'll look forward to seeing you next week. Yeah, see you all next week. Bye.